Welcome to Seeking Sanctuary House to Heart, a podcast about abuse, trauma, and finding healing in the arms of Christ. I'm Nikki from House of Faith and Freedom. You can check us out online at houseoffaithandfreedom.org, as well as on Facebook and Instagram. I'm here today with House of Faith Freedom's founder and my co-host, Hannah Fordyce. Thanks, Nikki. I'm Hannah, and today we have the opportunity to speak with Pastor John Broland, the president of International Ministerial Fellowship, lead pastor of Freshwater Church in Waconia, Minnesota, and also the author of a book called Wounded to Wonderful, which is what we're really going to focus in on today. When Josh got sick, when I was really broken, God said, you can either go through this like you normally do, which is put your head down and pretend it's all good and just fight it. Or you can open yourself up and share your emotions with other people and let them help you. I chose to open myself up, let other people care for us. And it had a profound impact on me as a person, me as a pastor. John, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Good to be with you, Anna. Good to be with you, Nikki. Your book, Wounded to Wonderful, is all about finding emotional healing and hope in Christ. One of the things that I really appreciated when I was reading it this past week is that it stems from your own personal testimony, from your own personal wounds. And one of the things that we really do on this show, I mean, every other episode we have a survivor story, is there's just a lot of power in hearing somebody's raw and unfiltered story. So I think that that's where we should start today. Could you tell us a little bit more about your personal faith journey? Sure. So I grew up in a good home and, you know, both of my parents were, were teachers and, and it was a good home. I was adopted uh, when I was nine months old. My sister's two years younger than me. She was also adopted when she was, I don't know, a month old. And so we grew up in a great house. We had two loving and kind parents. But I was not a Christian, not at all. I had gone to church, but I was not a believer. And then when I was 18, I enlisted in the military. I ended up going in it when I was 19. And that's really where I grew up. You know, you go out and see the rest of the world. And then you're like, oh, my gosh, there's a, there's a whole big world out here. And so I served in North Dakota for two years. And I worked law enforcement for the Air Force as an enlisted soldier. And then after that, I got sent to Bitburg, Germany. And uh, living in Germany was awesome. I turned into a raging alcoholic, which, uh, you know, there's all the beer and everything else. And then I got sent down to the sandbox. I got sent down to Turkey during the first Persian Gulf War. And it was there really that I started thinking about my own mortality. Because when you get shot at, you tend to think about life and death and where you're going to go, things like that. And of course, uh, when I was in, in this little place in the middle of Turkey, two miles from Iraq and three miles from Syria, working at a guard shack on the outer perimeter. You really think a lot. And uh, someone handed me a Bible. I don't know who. Maybe it was a military Bible. But of course, they started reading the book of Revelation, you know, like every non-Christian does. And I got scared to pieces. But uh, then anyways, after that, I got sent back to Germany and I took a job. It was called JDET, Joint Drug Enforcement Team with the Office of Special Investigation. So just think of it like the FBI, the Air Force. And my job was to be an undercover narcotics agent. And so during my time as an undercover narcotics agent, my boss, his name was Tim, he was a Christian. And that was really the first time in my life that I spent any time with a Christian. Someone who 
believed in God and lived out their faith, prayed on a regular basis, attended church, and wasn't a total hypocrite. And when we worked together, a lot of our time we spent doing stakeouts. Now, a stakeout is when you sit and you watch a house, a person, and unlike TV, most of the time it's incredibly boring. So you just sit there and you talk all hours of the night and the morning. And I asked him a lot of questions about faith. And even if he couldn't answer the question, he'd say, I'll get back to you. And eventually he would get back to me. And he was really the person that pointed me to Christ. He invited me to church. Of course, I told him I would go and I didn't uh, for about three weeks in a row. And then finally, uh, I decided to show up. I was so hungover. I still remember that. I showed up at Eiffel Baptist Church in Herfurst, Germany, completely hungover, wearing my ACDC t-shirt, and I walked into a fundamental independent Baptist church. And uh, that's exactly when I realized I do not fit in here. But as the pastor spoke, it was like he read my mail. And I later learned, you know, that's the Holy Spirit that was moving in my life. And at the time, I didn't know. But shortly thereafter, I gave my life to Christ. And had a, a big transformation in my life from my priorities to how I treated other people. And the cause of Christ became first and foremost in my mind. From there, I ended up getting out. And I went to Crown College in Minnesota, which I had no idea what it was. I didn't even know it was in Minnesota until my boss, Tim, his wife had gone there nine years earlier for one semester. I said, well, I'm from Minnesota. So I ended up going to Crown College. And I got my degree in pastoral ministries and ended up working as an associate pastor at Parkside Church in Waconia. And then we planted Freshwater in 1999. And I always skipped a lot of details, but sometimes they get kind of boring. But nonetheless, Christ did a pretty amazing work on the right. And now I had a big, big change of heart from being a police officer to becoming a pastor. Yeah. And one of the things I really love in your personal testimony is that. It was life on life. That was really the initial thing that drew you to Christ. It was the person who was just being authentically there and they didn't have to have all the answers. They didn't have to know everything, but he could just say, I'll get back to you. I don't necessarily know the answer. And I think we can get caught up on that piece sometimes as Christians when we're sharing our faith is we feel like we must know everything and, right. and you can't. But if you can just be humble and say, I don't know the answer, but I can point you in a direction of someone who will, or I can find it for you. Mm -hmm. I, I agree with that. It's, mm -hmm. you know, we sometimes you always think, oh, you put a lot of pressure on the pastor or church or whatever, and it's really life on life. That's what Jesus said. He spent time with his disciples. That's what they did. They spent time with their disciples, you know, ultimately pointing people towards Christ. If we could just get Christians to understand, you don't have to be perfect. You just have to point people towards Christ. You ever heard of bounded set versus center set? Bounded set, think of it like a corral for a horse. You've got the fence around it. And as long as the horses are inside that corral, they're fed, cared for, taken care of and protected. And so that's a bounded set mentality. And how it plays out in Christianity is here's all the rules. You don't drink, smoke, uh, date people that do don't ever cuss, homeschool your kids, then we will accept you. But if you smoke, send your kids to public school, we won't accept you. So oftentimes in a church, a church will have a, a set of bounded set rules. These are unwritten rules that 
they tell you whether or not you fit in. If you look like us, act like us, think like us, then we accept you. A center set mentality is the complete opposite. A center set mentality is kind of like an African watering hole. So the compelling draw of the water is so strong that zebras, lions, tigers, rhinos, everyone needs the water. It's messy around the watering hole, but the compelling draw of the water is so strong, everyone needs it to live. How that plays out in Christianity is that when you put the power of the cross up and point people towards Christ, it doesn't matter how far away from God you are. It doesn't matter if you're an alcoholic, a drug addict. We just want to point you towards Christ. So we love you no matter what, but we want you to see Jesus. And I believe that as churches, we really ought to have a center set mentality. Because if you have a bounded set mentality, you kick people out before you even accept them in. And that's not what Jesus did. The Pharisees had a bounded set mentality. Jesus had a center set mentality. Hmm. Yeah, it sounds like just understanding another. The hard part is when you hear language that is focused on behavior, pass, fail, works minded. Right. Um, and it takes a shift. It takes a shift to Christ, see and understand another. Right. The idea of legalism, the idea of labels, the language that we choose to use um, around religion, around Christianity, these types of things, they really play into the way that we're able to reach out and provide healing for those who are suffering. I mean, and this is part of what your book, Wounded to Wonderful, is about, is how do we address these wounds as the church? Mm -hmm. And one of the particular wounds that we certainly see a lot in our work with abuse and something that you wrote about is something called wounds of identity. And so this is essentially when when someone in your life is telling you either through their actions or often explicitly with their language or their words who you are. So what your value is. So sometimes that's like you're too much or you're too fat or you're not smart or you're whatever that is. Mm -hmm. And when we hear them, a lot of times we can end up uh, repeating them to ourselves over and over and over again until they become this lens through which we view ourselves. Mm -hmm. And there's this great quote from your book that says, Satan wants you to believe the lies that you have spoken to yourself. He wants your wounds to fester. He wants you to believe the words of death that have been spoken over you. Can you talk with us a little bit about how we combat some of these types of identity wounds, even things like I'm an alcoholic, I'm an addict, or these maladaptive ways that we've maybe learned to deal with our traumas, and how that can become something that the church uses to make you feel like an outsider, and that reinforces your identity wound instead of the church welcoming you in and saying, hey, we're going to have, you know, obviously appropriate boundaries for behavior and accountability, but also we, we want to have grace. We want to reinforce what your identity actually is. Right. So I think that if we don't repair it, we repeat it. So I'll say it again. If we don't repair it, we repeat it. And oftentimes we get labeled. There's, there's several kind of parts to this. But when we grow up, people say things to us that stick. And if they tell us uh, we're fat or we're ugly or we're dumb, Oftentimes we internalize it and we repeat it to ourselves, and that becomes our own label. So, uh, for example, I repeated the first grade. So my parents held me back. I took first grade twice. 
So I was called dumb and stupid uh, for years. And then in junior high, in those vulnerable seasons of life, I still remember my gym teacher called me a beanpole in front of the entire class. I internalized that, that I'm awkward and tall and don't fit in. So that complex I carried with myself for years that I don't fit in, I'm awkward looking. And you start to repeat these things to yourself. You repeat what other people say to you, or you look at social media, or you look at someone else and you compare yourself to them. And then you do self-shaming and we get consumed with one facet and we, we claim that as our identity. And I think that's wrong. There's so much more to a person than just that one part of them. Then we end up masking that pain. So it all goes back to how do you perceive yourself? We, and the Bible tells us this, are created in the image of God. And our identity is in Christ. It's not in alcohol or pot or who we were. Uh, it's based in Christ. And we have to readjust our neural associations to continually speak truth to ourselves. I think, yeah, I found this one really fascinating when I was reading through your book, because again, I feel like it's it's something I see a lot working in the advocacy world is victims who have been told for a really long time by their significant other that they're less than or that they're unworthy or that they're not smart enough or they're not whatever enough. And when they walk out of that relationship, it can take years and years and years for them right. to be able to reestablish what their identity actually is outside of this context of the relationship they were in where they were told lies. And especially from someone who's supposed to love you or, you know, like you mentioned, people who are in positions of authority, people that you respect, like that comes with this additional weight and um, one of the things that I talk about in some of my trainings is various aspects of trauma-informed care when we're looking specifically at abuse. And one of them is strengthening identity. And that whole piece is something really unique that the church has to offer because scripture gives us the truth of your identity. We don't have to guess at the truth of your identity. Right. We know that you're loved. We know that you're free. We know that you're uniquely made in Christ. And you can use these scriptural truths to really reinforce who you are and to start to rewrite that personal script so that, like you said, you don't end up acting in accordance with a false belief about who you are. Right. Yeah. You know, those, I think they're called neuro associations, where in your brain you associate my identity with being fat or my identity with being dumb. And you travel that road so much that path turns into a gravel road, that gravel road turns into a highway, that highway into a freeway. And then you just freely go between I'm fat and that's who I am. And when you understand who you are in Christ, you're created in the image of God for the glory of God. That's like a little path. And you have to keep repeating it over and over and over. And that path becomes a gravel road. That gravel road becomes a highway. That highway becomes a freeway. But that takes years to do. It doesn't happen overnight, especially for people who've grown up in trauma and abuse. Most of the people I interact with now don't even really know that they're being abused or that they are a victim. For example, one time I met with a lady and she said to me, do you mean it's not normal for a man to hit a woman? I said, no, it's not normal. That's unacceptable. She said, I thought that's what everyone did. But that's what she was told, and and she believed that. She thought her identity was just to get beat 
when she didn't do the right thing or say the right thing or look right or perform, you know, some sort of a sexual thing for her husband. It just breaks your heart when people, they don't even realize that that's dysfunctional. And I think a lot of that goes into the culpability that we have as a Christian culture or inside church culture of like, what narrative are we portraying as the church? Are we talking about what healthy relationships are? Are we talking about what unhealthy is, what abusive is? Is this a part of the narrative that we have when we're discussing marriages? Because it's interesting, um, like growing up, I was a, a pastor's kid, very involved in the church. My parents had a great relationship, but also we never talked about like relationships outside of just don't have sex before marriage. Like that was the conversation. And so I ended up in a dating relationship that was abusive for two years. And I had no concept that it was abusive until I was out of it and actually started working in the world of domestic violence. And all of a sudden was like, oh my gosh, that relationship I just thought was bad was abusive. But there was no, um, there was no like narrative to have that as a part of my understanding of relationships. And I think that brings in this interesting point that we have as, as faith communities is if we want to help people heal from wounds, we have to have an understanding of wounds. Like we have to take the time to, to really like dig into the meat of it and be curious and be good listeners and pay attention to subtlety because we can falsely perpetuate those bad narratives when we inadvertently misapply scripture or when we hyper-focus on one element of scripture over others. Like in marriage, for sure, one of the big ones is like um, in Ephesians 5, where we're talking about like a wife submitting to her husband, right? This can be misapplied pretty strongly in the context of abuse. Correct. Or a wife's body isn't her own. It's also her husband's. That can be misapplied for sexual abuse. Like it's these tiny elements where we go, how do we pay attention not only to our internal narratives, but also to the narratives that we're giving as a culture? And I think that's really interesting how that can play into people's internal wounds, especially when it's coming from someone with the position of authority or someone who you respect inside the faith community, because it comes with almost like the authority of God attached to it. Right. And talking about church wounds that are inadvertently caused, you mentioned in your book that your son was diagnosed with cancer yes. and someone who you were close with had said that it was your fault for, I think you said, not being faithful enough. And I had a really similar experience to you. My brother was paralyzed when I was in high school and we had someone from our faith community who had said, you know, he wasn't healed because we didn't have enough faith when we prayed for him to be healed. And it was so damaging. Like that one phrase is like you remember the one bad phrase, even though there could be like tons of other support coming in. And so if you could just talk to us too about how do we come around as a church and sort of rewrite some of the negative pain that can happen because churches are messy because people are messy and we're a part of the church. Like, how do we become a place of healing? And how do we repair some of the damages that people may have had caused by the church for their identity wounds? Right. Now, that, that's, um, that, that's great. And I'm happy to talk on that. One thing that people oftentimes say is, I hate the church. Or I don't like the church. Well, we don't like people in the church. It's not the church. It's 
the feeling or the information we've gotten from someone in the church. I'd like to think most people have great intentions, but some of them say some things that are incredibly harmful and hurtful to people. When my son Josh was diagnosed with leukemia at three and a half, about six days after he was diagnosed, I was still a mess. I mean, I was tears. We had thought he was going to die. I mean, I was an absolute mess. I, I could hardly talk. And a close friend of mine, a guy who was definitely an elder candidate at the church, we were a really small church at the time, uh, maybe 50, 60 people, 70 people, something like that. But anyways, he wanted to take me out for breakfast. And I thought he was taking me out to be my friend and listen to my heart. And it was the first person I was going to just kind of share how broken I truly was. And we went out for breakfast. And I remember we had ordered our breakfast and it, it had come. And then he looked across at me and I'm sure we had a bunch of general chit chat, but he said, John, the reason your son is sick with cancer is because you did not spiritually protect your family. You did not pray for him and you did not pray for your wife. Clearly, you have, have not taken care of your own family. And when he said that, I was in such a vulnerable state that I was absolutely crushed. I, I was so hurt. I was so broken when he said that, that I got up and left immediately just sobbing. Like I, I just, I was so vulnerable. And then I began to question my own theology because what if he was right? What if I didn't pray for my family? What if I didn't pray for my son? What if my son dies because of me? What if he, you know, all his treatment could have been prevented if I was just a more godly man? I actually had to go get counseling for that and have someone to help correct my thinking. Now, I'm a pastor. I get theology. I mean, I, I, I've got degrees. And in my time of vulnerability, I was so fragile that I questioned my own convictions. And it literally took other people telling me, this is truth and this is a lie. <laughs> and uh, I, I was so hurt by that person. Even seeing them anymore just devastated me. You just realize how that bad theology affects you in such a profound way. It was literally devastating to my faith. And it took me months to recover from that. Yeah, thank you for sharing. Sadly, that is the story of many. And even now, you know, I do a lot of funerals and oftentimes really good hearted people say really bad things to people. Recently, there was a 23-year-old person that died. You know, the Lord just takes the good ones young. And when people say things like that, it does so much hurt to people. Or they say, you'll get over it. No, you'll never get over the death of a spouse. You'll never get over the death of a child or the death of a parent. If they go in your perception too young, you get through it but you don't get over it. To say you get over it as if to say their life didn't matter or you move on. And good intended leaders and pastors can say things that are just harmful to people. If I could give any pastor, ministry leader some advice, it's this. When you visit with hurting people, just sit by them and say nothing. Just man with them and be with them. Do the dishes. Walk the dog. You don't have to say anything. Yeah. Our words have incredible power, whether that's the words we use in our own personal narrative or the words that we're saying to somebody else. And they're not to be said lightly. 
right? Like people are, I think in the church, especially they're not malintentioned. They're often just misinformed. And so it's like, be, be cautious with what you say. And like you said, when you don't know what to say, don't try to fill this space. Just listen to people, especially in our context where we're talking about abuse and trauma. Just listen, hear where they're at, hear what their needs are, hear what their hurts are before you come in with a savior complex thinking, oh, I'm going to be able to tell you how to fix this or how you need to move on, or I'm going to slap a platitude on it. I think a lot of times presence is more useful in these types of scenarios. Less words is better oftentimes. Just being (laughs) present, caring, giving someone a look. It's not about having the best answer or even just mourn like David did oftentimes in the Psalms. He he mourned and he talked to God, but he was mourning. But we don't we don't like it to linger there. We always want to have an answer. We want to somehow like fix the problem. Oftentimes we can't, especially when it comes to, you know, that kind of a pain and, and suffering. Yeah, it's powerful to hold spaces with others, like you're saying, just being a listener. And I think it it ends up being such a reminder to any of us that it isn't about muscling through or white knuckling situations, um, pushing through it, you know, it just isn't, it just isn't weakness. It's power. It's God's power. Right. When Josh got sick, when I was really broken mm-hmm. and God said, it, it, you know, I didn't audibly speak to me, but he put this in my heart. He said, you can either do it and go through this like you normally do, which is put your head down and pretend it's all good and just fight it. Or you can open yourself up and share your emotions with other people and let them help you. I chose to open myself up, let other people care for us. And it had a profound impact on me as a person, me as a pastor, and me as a father. Like it's for me, in my head, it's night and day how I normally responded back then and how I responded after that moment. That was very freeing, actually, to realize that. I don't have to just suck all this up and take it. I can mm-hmm. I can be transparent, real. I can cry in front of other people. I can receive their prayers, their blessings. Um, yeah, that radically changed me. I'm, you hate to say it, but you look back and you go, man, I'm glad that God reshaped me because I would not be the person I am today if I hadn't gone through what I went through back then. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't be the person I am today if that individual wouldn't have said what he said to me, but I've been able to to confront that lie with thousands of people, literally thousands of people to say, that's a lie. And hopefully I can help other people understand that, that they don't have to live in other people's words and they don't have to live in that shame and guilt. And I think this is a real, um, there's a couple of things you said that I want to point out here. One of them is that when you close yourself off, when you isolate yourself, you allow those lies, those hurts to take up more space than they should, right? Right. Like it can be easy when you've been harmed by the church, when you've been harmed by another individual to really close yourself off almost in like a self-protection kind of Mm like like an armadillo curling up and you close yourself off from everything else too, including truth, including encouragement, including support. Because what is what is that ratio they say? It's like for every one negative thing you hear, you have to hear five positive things to least. Yeah, the same degree of weight right. in your mind. We need so much truth reinforcement after we go through trauma in order to 
really start to move forward into that place of healing, into that place of truth of who we are. How do we provide these ongoing various types of resources, including the church body, but also, like you said, counselors and wise therapists and other outside individuals who can really continue to reinforce that truth? Yeah, I I agree. And we hear negative things. We isolate. And that's the worst thing you can do because when you isolate, you start to believe your own lies. You start to believe what Satan puts in your head. You are worthless. No one does like you. And uh, I battled depression. I battled it for a long time. This year's been really, really good. I've tried to take care of myself on different levels. But when you're depressed, you do not want to talk to anybody. And that's exactly when you need to be talking to people. A couple of things I like to live by. One, everyone needs to sit around a table where nobody's impressed with you. In other words, you need to be able to sit around a table where people can just speak truth to you and you receive it and you give it. Everyone needs that in their life. In other words, you won't isolate people, will be able to check in on you, accountability. And I also believe that, that I am not perfect in any way, shape, or form. I want everyone to know that I'm on a journey. And for me, part of that is just being transparent with people to help them to feel normal and to have conversations, to, to not pretend, uh, pretend that we're all perfect, not to pretend that mental illness isn't a real thing, not, you know. I don't want to live on the, the unicorn rainbow side of Christianity. I want to live where Jesus lived. I want to live in that world. I want to live in that area where we can help people. We can come alongside them. We can accept them where they're at and just say, look, there's there's Jesus. Let's just, let's just walk a little bit closer to him. And it's not about doing all these things. Sometimes just being in the presence of God and just receiving what God has in store for us. Christianity is a set of rules and regulations that you obey all this stuff. And like the more Bible studies you do, the bigger Bible you have, the more holy you are. It's about about being in the presence of God. It's about enjoying that and receiving God's truth on who you are. Uh, that's I think that's really where people find healing, is in just understanding how much God loves them and wants to draw them closer to Him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like if I could round out this conversation... We just consistently keep coming back to the same things, which are be open to community, to people who can reinforce and speak truth into your life. Be humble when you're the person who is at the table with someone who's hurting and be willing to listen and and be present and believe and be compassionate. Be Jesus. Be the church. What does that look like for us to really open the doors of our community to live inside the mess that is the church because we are made up of broken people. And because every single person walking through those doors on a Sunday, they have wounds. All of them do. And that's going to show up in different ways. And how can we leverage that to have more compassion instead of hurting each other more? Um, A great pastor friend of mine had um, said this in a sermon. He said, the church is a holy car crash. And there's a whole bunch of broken glass and all of us will inevitably be cut at some point by somebody else but somehow God's still going to make it into a stained glass window. I'll I'll add to that. I think when we cause the wreck, (laughs) we need to own up to it and apologize for it. (laughs) And, you know, if we've hurt someone, I'd like to think unintentionally, but if we've hurt someone, I mean, how we said something to them or, or directed something or treated them more like a tool than as a person, that we, especially those of us in ministry, need to apologize and say, I'm so sorry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I would add, if you cause the car crash, 
apologize, but take it beyond that. I mean, walk it into real repentance. What does it look like to live Mm -hmm. out that changed behavior? And I think that's what godly repentance does, right? Is it wears new trails that become new gravel roads that become new highways in your behavior. True repentance is going to shift the way that you choose to act and respond to people. And so it's like, also, how do we hold ourselves accountable to hurt that we may have inadvertently caused or or purposefully caused? Mm -hmm. One of my favorite phrases to use, especially in abuse, because you do run into a lot of people who act abusive because they grew up in abuse, is it's an explanation. It's not an excuse. And so it's like we can have compassion for where you're coming from and work on healing that wound. And also you can be held accountable for the choices that you're making today. And that's always a weird dichotomy to hold, I think. It is. But yeah, people don't forget about that stuff. You know, we should forgive, but you're not going to forget. And you're not required Mm -hmm. to forget. We're required to forgive people, but not to forget what happened, not to downplay it. Doesn't mean I'm going to forget. Doesn't mean we're going to be best buddies again. Um, But I do need to release that anger in my heart uh, Mm -hmm. and let God fill that that hole. We don't have a lot of time left, but I wrote about this in my book, but that concept of kintsugi, kintsugi. Now, kintsugi is that concept that for me, it's something that's so valid every single day. And it comes out of the Japanese culture and how they'll, for example, in America, if you have a coffee cup and you, and it's all white and it gets a chip, you throw it away. Or if you break it on the ground, you throw it away because it's useless. It's like, who wants this? It's a broken vessel. But in Japanese culture, if someone drops a coffee pot on the ground, someone will painstakingly glue it back together. And oftentimes they'll use gold glue to fill in the cracks. And when it's done, it's more beautiful and more valuable than it was when it first came out of the factory or out of that person's store. And I really believe it with Christ, you know, we're all broken. But with the concept of Kintsugi and the Holy Spirit working in our life and Christ healing those wounds, that we can truly be more beautiful, even if we've been broken in the past. We are not to be discarded, but God uses those scars and actually become something beautiful and that can be used for the glory of God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Your wounds become your blessings. That's right. And it is true. They should never yep. define us. I mean, they, they ultimately they do shape us and how we perceive life. But they should never define who we are. We are defined by who we are from biblical standards, from Christ. And to treat one another that way, especially when someone is broken. Mm-hmm. I hope that people go, you know, participate in the church, love other people, understand that we're all broken and on a journey. But uh, don't give up on God. Don't give up on the church. Y- you need to find a safe place where you can find healing, hope, and recovery. John, it has just been an incredible pleasure to sit and chat with you today. So thank you so much for being on the show. And I will, of course, link your book in our show notes as well. Absolutely. Thanks, Hannah. Thanks, Nikki, for the time. I appreciate the work and the ministry that you have. It is something that is so needed and so important. So, so blessings. You've been listening to Seeking Sanctuary House to Heart. This podcast is a production of House of Faith and Freedom with your host, Hannah and Nikki. For more information about intimate partner violence training for the church, check out our website, houseoffaithandfreedom.org.